0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: We'll spend the hour today talking about fascism, a word that has begun to crop up in political conversations about everything from the response to the Black Lives Matter protests to the prospect of President Donald Trump being reelected in November. Are we witnessing the rise of fascist policy in this country? Or is our democracy strong enough to resist fascist impulses and actions? We'll discuss it all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Good day everyone and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. There was a piece in the New York Times last month which made the case that the time to describe the state of American politics as fascist is here. The word itself is so loaded and carries so much historical weight that even some of President Trump's harshest critics had held off from using it until just recently. We're spending the hour today looking into what fascism is, what it looks like, and how it relates to the events that are unfolding in places like Oregon and throughout the rest of the country. A tense, political, and ideological standoff in Portland has served as a breaking point of sorts around this conversation about fascism in America. As President Trump paints a picture of anti-fa and radical left chaos playing out in the streets of the Pacific Northwest City, Portland residents and officials say these protests, which are meant to demonstrate solidarity and support of the Black Lives Matter movement, were intended to be peaceful and nonviolent. But over the last few weeks, images of brutalized Portland protesters and officials in military gear have begun to infiltrate the national media landscape. And things have become especially concerning as we're now hearing stories of protesters getting picked up off the streets by federal officers who are riding around in unmarked vans. Here to tell us exactly what's happening in Portland is someone who has been on the ground attending and reporting on these protests. Independent journalist, Tuck Woodstock, welcome to Detroit Today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So I think for those of us who don't live in Portland and are not experiencing this on the ground, uh, there's a kind of surreal quality to, to all of this. It looks as though you're you're watching something that's happening in another time or in another place, in another country. I, I would love for you just to give us a sense of what started these protests and what has escalated them to the point where we're now seeing on the news in other parts of the country, each night uh, the, the clash between protesters And authorities there
2: absolutely so these protests started two months ago now with the killing of George Floyd the same way that black lives matter protests started across the country at that time and for the first month or so of protest the protesters energy was focused on the Portland Police Department specifically and so uh, you know almost every night these protesters would gather at the headquarters of the Portland Police Bureau, which is called the Justice Center, and there would be, uh, you know, almost similar clashes between protesters and the Portland police. Tear gas was used often, riot control munitions were used almost every night, um, and that went on until early to mid-July, at which point uh protesters realized that federal troops had been deployed just across the street at this federal courthouse and uh for a while the protesters debated amongst themselves over to whether even engage with these federal agents because their focus was on portland police defending portland police uh holding them accountable for uh black people that have been killed by portland police and uh then you know slowly focus shifted um, not entirely away from Portland police, but more towards these federal agents that were stationed across the street at the courthouse. Uh, for the first couple weeks when these federal agents were here, not many people seemed to notice. Uh, you know, their clashes looked the same as what had happened with Portland police for the last month, so it didn't feel terribly different. And then in mid-July, the story broke, um, in Oregon Public Broadcasting about, uh, this, these unmarked vans that had picked up a couple of protesters on their way home. And from there, the story gained local and national and international attention. And it went from having a few hundred protesters coming out every night to thousands of protesters coming out every night. And unfortunately, uh, that energy, which has, you know, been amazing for this movement, uh, has also led to increasing escalations and in tactics by these federal agents to the point where Really, only now in the last week am I comfortable saying that the federal agents have escalated beyond what has been going on for months with the Portland Police Department. But Mm. I would say at this point, it does feel like more violent um, and more surreal even than what had been going on for the previous two months.
1: Mm. We've also seen footage and pictures of the mayor there in Portland and other local leaders responding to what's happening? Uh, tell us what tell us what they're saying and what role they're playing in all of this.
2: Yeah, it's been really interesting, particularly with the mayor, because our mayor is also uh, the police commissioner, so he's sort of doubly in charge of the Portland Police Department. Huh. And for the first month uh, month and a half, when Portland Police was using uh, tear gas or and or riot control munitions, flashbangs. Uh, was bull rushing the crowd, was making seemingly random arrests of protesters. Uh, the mayor was very much, you know, on the side of the Portland police and said that, you know, these, these protesters were violent and criminal and uh, needed to be, you know, treated this way by Portland police. And then the federal agents came out and started doing virtually the exact same things To these protesters and suddenly the mayor was speaking out saying that this was completely unacceptable it was a disproportionate use of force it was an overreach um so it's been really strange and surreal for us on the ground who have been here for two months to see uh the mayor decrying you know virtually identical tactics when they're coming from federal agents rather than uh you know local police uh to that point A few nights ago, July 22nd, the mayor actually came out to the protest for the first time in two months. Uh, And, you know, when he came out, he was greeted uh, with, uh, not warmly, Uh, he came out to these protests to cheers. His name's Ted Wheeler, and he came out to cheers of um, F. Ted Wheeler and (laughs) other such, you know, welcoming (laughs) chants. And, um, you know, he said that he was going to stay with the protesters he was going to go to the front lines and so he went to the front lines of the courthouse the, the sort of skirmish between federal agents and protesters there he did withstand two rounds of tear gas uh wearing only a paper mask and then you know that was enough for him and he left the scene and he went on you know New York Times, other national outlets to talk about how disproportionate that use of force had been with the protesters and how, uh, you know, he had been tear gassed and how unpleasant it had been and how he didn't agree with the fact that federal agents were using tear gas. And as he was on those calls, Ah, uh, Portland police rolled up to the scene, declared a riot, and announced that they were going to be using tear gas as well. Hmm. So it's been a really, really interesting um and, you know, seemingly hypocritical uh, stance from our mayor here,
1: yeah, yeah. so so one of the things that I've also wondered over the last week or so is why Portland is the target of the Trump administration. Now they've said that they want to send these federal agents to a couple of different places. And Detroit is one of them, even though uh, there, there there aren't the kind of protests or the size of protests happening here now that are that are happening in Portland. But but what's your sense of why Portland is attracting this kind of response and attention from the Trump administration? Is there a political dynamic to that as well?
2: Yeah, so I want to be really clear first of all that when the federal agents arrived. The nightly protests had dwindled down to a couple hundred people per night. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of the protests were just people hanging out in a park, like eating chips, listening to music. (laughs) And so I think that the protests would have died out uh, pretty quickly and pretty naturally had these federal agents not arrived to escalate. Uh, So it's not that there was like a real direct immediate need for additional troops on the ground in Portland. Uh, So that said, you know, I can't, really explain the actions of the president, but we do have, um, a democratic liberal mayor, democratic liberal, um, governor. And I think it is like a pretty obvious power play, um, to send federal troops into this city because, you know, there doesn't seem to be much that our local and state officials can do, uh, to control what these troops do to decide whether or not they're here. Um, And so, you know, it does seem to be this sort of uh, power play by this president who you know wants to be seen as this law and order candidate uh, who is saying, like, look, I don't want to I'm not going to listen to what the mayor wants or what the governor wants. I'm going to, you know, send these troops in and be hard on crime and hard on these um, violent anarchists, which is the phrase used by acting secretary uh, of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. Hmm. So that's my best guess. Uh, for what's happening, but yeah, I, you know, your guess is as good
1: as mine at this point. Hmm. I'm talking with Tuck Woodstock, uh, an independent journalist who covers Portland, and we are talking about the protests that are happening in Portland and the response to those protests from the Trump administration. Large protests that are happening each night, and we are seeing lots of people clashing with authorities, some local, now some federal, uh, in an escalating uh, cycle that seems headed for perhaps real kinds of uh, of calamity. Um, we would love to hear from you as well. What are you seeing and hearing about these protests in Portland? Do you have friends or family who live in Portland and are experiencing what's happening there? Uh, also, are you concerned about the ways that protests in Detroit could change if President Trump sends federal officials here? Something he has said he plans to do. In a little bit, we are going to talk with a Detroit crime reporter about what it would be like if federal agents came to Detroit at this time and interfered with or interacted with in any way the protests that we are also seeing here in our city. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Tuck, I, I want to ask about again about these federal agents and the idea of people being picked up mm-hmm. randomly on the streets. Do you know of anyone who's had that experience? Uh, and, and give us a sense of what Goes on, in other words, that you get picked up. Are you arrested? Uh, the, the, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of due process that attends this 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 phalanx of federal agents that uh, that are there. I'm, I'm trying to get a better sense of what they're doing and what's happening to people who interact with them.
2: Yeah, so I want to be really clear on this, that the federal agents have made at last count 82 arrests since they've been on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I've only heard of personally three uh, at my last count of these incidents. So I'm not saying there have been only three, but it is not the majority of cases that people are being picked up. And unmarked vans. Um, you know, the vast majority are not happening that way. But yes, there have been, you know, a number of pro, uh, Portland protesters who have reported um, not doing anything that could be, you know, considered illegal. Either they're walking home from protests or they're uh, drawing on non-federal property with chalk. Uh, and when they were doing these things, um, an unmarked van has rolled up to where they were. And, uh, you know, these federal agents have jumped out and grabbed them, put them in the van, uh, driven them around a bit, not told them where they were, not told them where they were going or what's going on. Eventually, they my understanding is that they were taken to the federal courthouse um, either there or before then. Again, it's unclear. They were searched. Uh, to see if there was anything incriminating on them. And I want to be clear that something as innocuous as a laser pointer can be seen as, um, you know, a sign that you have assaulted a police officer because shining a laser pointer at a federal officer is um, what's getting a lot of people charged with assaulting a federal officer. Um, And then after, you know, that these people have been searched, I know the one case that I know a lot of details about, after this person was searched and they didn't find anything on him, um, he was eventually released and and not charged. But again, like we don't know the details in all of these cases because often uh, people don't feel safe coming forward. Hmm.
1: So. Uh, the 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 nature of these protests also, I think um, suggests something about who's in who's involved. Uh, I, I've heard about the wall of moms. I've heard about the leaf blowing dads. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us who the folks are who are coming out for these protests each night.
2: Right. So, yeah, I want to be clear. There have always been moms and dads at these protests. Uh, one of the you know, leaders of there aren't really leaders, but one of the people on the bullhorn that has been on these protests for two months now is a very young, um, queer, black mom. Hmm. And there's also been um, a mom who's an Indigenous veteran who's been there almost every night. So there have always been moms there. But there's been um, this shift from, you know, the first almost two months, which was largely very young people in their teens and 20s. And, you know, disproportionately for Portland, which is a very white city, disproportionately black and brown folks, Um, Also a number of white folks as well uh, coming out to these protests every night. Uh, It has shifted from that demographic to really people from all walks of life in Portland. Um, You're seeing a lot more of these like middle aged white folks, these like mom block and dad block coming out and something that uh, is really endearing (laughs) is that these moms and dads are sometimes the literal parents of the people who have been coming out here for two months. (laughs) So you'll see like a a teen in black block and then like a mom in a yellow shirt and, you know, so so that's a literal like, you know, mother child (laughs) couple. Um, And so, yeah, it's really, it's really gone from being this group of just a couple hundred people who were going and, and everyone else in town not paying attention to, you know, lawyers, veterans, chefs, um, local business owners, uh, yeah, parents, grandparents. Uh, these are all people that are coming out to the protest for the first time. And, you know, honestly, in a way that that really speaks to the theme of your, your episode today, uh, really getting battle hardened really quickly. These moms and dads who were coming out for the first time last week, they started showing up just in T-shirts and now they're showing up in helmets, goggles, respirators and shields. Uh, because that's what's necessary to, uh, I don't want to say survive, but stay unharmed. Uh, mm. And even then, it's not often enough, but mm. stay relatively unharmed at these protests. Mm.
1: Again, 313 1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Julie in Detroit. Julie, welcome to the show.
3: Hello. Thank you for having me on. Sure. I just wanted to say that a possible cause or reason... Um, for the federal troops, maybe that it plays into President Trump's uh, diversion tactics, where he might expect Portland residents to respond in the way that he wants them to with violence or increased protests. And he can then say, look at these anarchists who are wanting to take over our country, which can then appeal to a lot of his conservative supporters and maybe you know, other parts of the country hmm. thinking like, oh, yeah, we need President Trump to reinstate law and order. Look what they're doing. Hmm. Um, so I just wanted to say that as a possible
1: sure. reason. Julie, I, I I think that's a really interesting uh, idea, and I'm glad you called uh, to share that. Uh, Tuck, before I ask you to respond, I want to also read a comment on Twitter that's kind of in the same, in the same space. Uh, Neil says... It's pretty clear that part of the reason why Trump and the feds are focused on Portland is somewhat ironically because the crowds are going to be largely white. It allows Trump supporters mm-hmm. to claim this crackdown isn't about fomenting anti people of color backlash. So, so with, with Julie and Neil here, we have this kind of provocation and calculation, I guess, that, that, that could be behind what uh, the administration is up to.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I think that, uh, yeah, the the images that you're seeing come out of Portland, uh, you know, will and have been used in the re-election campaign, not just of President Trump, but of other Republican officials as well. Like, I, I personally have footage that I shot at one of these protests back when it was still local Portland police um, that was used in a Mitch McConnell re-election video, not with my permission, but like it happened. Um, And so, yeah, I absolutely think that your callers um, and commenters are absolutely correct.
1: Okay. Tuck Woodstock, independent journalist who is covering Portland and the protests out there. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk with the Detroit crime reporter about what it will be like if federal agents come to Detroit and interfere or interact with the protesters the way that they are in Portland. Stay with us on Detroit Today.
0: You've heard us talking about WDET's financial situation. Here's an update from WDET general manager, Mary Zatina.
2: The cost to run WDET this fiscal year is $4.6 million. As of now, there's still $1.7 million left to raise before the fiscal year ends September 30th. 250 people stepped up to support WDET for the very first time during this crisis. And I'm asking all of you who have not given a gift of support yet to give your first gift now. Please know that your support is always deeply appreciated and is even more critical now. If you've never supported WDET before and you can afford to make a gift for those who cannot, I hope you will make a gift and encourage your friends And family to join Team DET.
0: Now is the time to support WDET. Give online at WDET.org.
1: This is Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about fascism today, the idea of that word and how it applies to the things that we see going on in our country, the massive protests that are in the streets of Detroit and Portland and many other cities around the country, the coming election, the re-election campaign of Donald Trump and the ideas that he is putting out there and trying to get people to vote for. Are they examples of fascism? In a little bit, we are going to talk with author Jason Stanley about his book about fascism and how it applies to these conversations that we're having right now. But first, I want to welcome George Hunter, a crime reporter with the Detroit News to Detroit Today, to talk about the idea, the prospect of federal agents coming to Detroit to deal with protests. That's something we're seeing happen in Portland. There are Uh, rumors and uh, perhaps uh, ideas that that could happen here in Detroit or in cities like Chicago. Uh, What would that look like? Uh, George Hunter, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh,
0: Hey, Stephen. How are you?
1: Very good. I'm glad that you are here with us. So uh, let's start here. Is what's happening with federal troops in Portland something that could happen or is likely to happen here in the city of Detroit?
0: Well, certainly the mayor and the police chief are saying no, they've there's they've openly said they welcome them to come help with 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 violence, um, which is nothing new. I mean, there's been federal federal agents here in Detroit for decades uh, with these federal partnerships. I probably myself, I've been on the crime beat for about 21 years, and I think I may have covered five or six of these press conferences myself that where they're announcing some federal initiative. Uh, 2013, if you remember, there's Detroit one that was announced by Barb McQuaid and Dave Bing. That was a gun initiative. Last year, you had the Operation Relentless Pursuit. If you remember, uh, Attorney General Bill Barr was here mm-hmm. with uh, with the police chief. That's a gang, drug, violent crime initiative. And then this recent Operation Legend thing. Uh, the Detroit uh, U.S. Attorney Matt Schneider says that's just going to be an, op, uh, an extension of the thing that happened last year, that relentless—they always come up with the, these uh, catchy names for these um, these operations. This one was Relentless Pursuit last year, and then now it's Operation Legend this year. Um, but the, Schneider's saying it's going to be essentially the same thing. So I think, um, you know, when you talk about federal— Detroit's a city as everybody knows when you talk about federal troops in Detroit everybody has the stories about the National Guard mm-hmm. during 67 mm-hmm. it's it, it's something that makes Detroiters nervous anytime you mention that because you know I mean just it's just federal federal agents are in your city it, it doesn't sound good but if you stop and look at it it's nothing new that if they're not here to, as the mayor and the police chief uh, insist that they won't be here to, to, to deal with the protests. If that is the truth, then frankly, I don't see much different than what's been going on. Do you remember the ter- There's been, you know, uh, federal troops, and then there have been some problems that come up every now and then because of. It. If you remember the Terrence Kellum shooting a few sure. years ago, he uh, the, the the guy who shot him was an ICE agent as part of one of these task force. And these task force, by the way, uh, Stephen, don't always uh, work out as well. If you recall, I did a series of stories uh, six seven months ago about uh, the task force involving the DT, DEA and the ATF. Mm-hmm. And basically, uh, the police chief in Detroit, Craig, uh, basically disbanded it because he said they weren't being truthful. I don't remember that, um, about a about a, uh, a, uh, one of their informants who had gone on allegedly and killed six people. And there was a big flap over the use of that informant and whether or not they would... Uh, you know, own up to having him as their informant and that sort of thing. And so he, he there was a big, uh, big open uh, animosity between the local and feds. And that's not anything new either. Craig disbanded a FBI drug task force shortly after he got here in uh, 2013. So these uh, these partnerships don't always go quite as uh, smoothly as, as they might. <laughs> they might appear at the, pre- at the podium where everybody's smiling at each other. Sure. But there, you know, it hasn't there have been some bumps in the road? Is regarding having feds here in Detroit, um, you know, there's bumps in the road having you know certainly MSP in Detroit for instance, uh, and there's bumps. In, you're not gonna have bumps in the road whenever you have policing. Period. I think. Um, so, and whether or not there are more bumps when you have feds in or the state, for instance, if you remember MSP sure. got into that, they, 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 uh, the one trooper, Mark Besner, killed the young man Pased on the a end. young
1: man, yes, sure. uh, so, Grimes. so let me ask you this. We're, we are seeing activists post pictures of what appear to be federal troops in unmarked vehicles, implying that it's just a matter of time before something like what is going on in Portland happens here what are we seeing in those videos and and again is this different from the many examples that you just pointed out where we do have help often from federal agents to to deal with with crime in detroit
0: to be honest with you i don't like to speculate Stephen. i'm not a columnist i'm a straight so sure. i won't speculate on what they may be doing that mm-hmm. sort of thing um you know, I would be shocked. I'll tell you this. If there weren't feds around monitoring what's going on, um, that's just that's what they do. You know, I mean, that, that's it's. You know, I mean, they, they do that um, all the time. That's, you know, the, whether, again, if that's good or a bad thing, I'll leave that. I'm a straight news reporter. I won't offer opinions. You know, I'm just here to lay facts out. Mm-hmm. But. I would be shocked, frankly, if if there aren't Feds watching what's going on and monitoring it. To what end, I really don't know and I don't want to speculate. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, What about the unmarked cars and the idea that they're not in uniform? Is that Somewhat different as well, if that's actually happening. Not here. for
0: surveillance, no. Not for surveillance. The FBI does that all the time. I mean, that's what they do. Again, that's a, they're not going to. If they're if they're doing undercover surveillance, they're certainly not going to be in a marked car. Um, I think the issue people have is when you start making arrests in uniforms that aren't clearly marked. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the issue a lot of people had is the arrest portion of it. I don't think anybody involved in law enforcement. Even anybody who's critical of law enforcement, I think, you know, if you're doing an undercover operation where you're monitoring something to look for potential problems, you're obviously not going to be in a marked vehicle or wearing uniforms. But if you're just observing, you know, I mean, that's that I'm not hearing a ton of people say that's a problem again. When you start placing people under arrest and you don't have a uniform with clearly marked um, patches to delineate, who, you know, what agency you're working for. You know, who do I even complain to if, if there's a, if there's a situation where there's, you know, brutality or and you don't even know who to complain to. So that, I think, has garnered the most criticism mm. as far as being undercover, that sort of thing. Mm.
1: Uh, one of the things that is going on in Detroit right now, other then the protests is a real uptick in violence homicides are up 30% and non-fatal shootings are up more than 50% from yeah. a year ago is it is is the police chief or the mayor for instance saying that they need federal help with that problem
0: I they welcome it. I don't know if they're saying they need it per Mm. se, um, but they have said that, yes, if it's as far as violence goes, you know, they're saying they welcome that help. Um, And again, that isn't anything new. That's been going on for decades with with that kind of initiative where you're going after guns and gangs and violence in Detroit. It has been pretty bad. I'm hearing from sources that here's the issue is there's a lot of you're seeing a ton of these that are are at parties Mm -hmm. Um, and more so than I recall. I mean, there's always been those mass shootings at parties. But I'm seeing that it, with an alarming regularity now this this summer, and it may, it, I'm, I have to drill down on it myself, and because sometimes perception is not reality, and it may seem like there's more of those. I'd kind of like to quantify that. I don't know if you can. That's a difficult thing to kind of put your finger on. Is how many how many shootings at parties you know happen? It's not something there's a database for or anything, but just anecdotally, it just does seem to be like there's you know people are. And maybe that's covid related. Again, I hate to speculate on stuff, but certainly the police chief has said that that he believes that the frustration by, you know, being being stuck at home and all the, you know, all the other the other uh, stresses that come with this pandemic mm-hmm. um, may be adding to it. And it doesn't sound you know, I mean, it sounds kind of plausible, I guess, I'm, if I may, if I may uh, <laughs> editorialize for a second, I guess that sounds kind of plausible that folks are kind of uh you know, frustrated. They got nothing to do. And, you know, one thing, you know, leads to another and, you know, they whip out a gun and start shooting.
1: Hmm. Okay. George Hunter, crime reporter for the Detroit News. It's great to have you here with us. Thanks for coming Uh, by. Thanks for having me. Take care, Steve. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to take a look at the roots of fascism and what we can learn by looking back to history. Author Jason Stanley will join us next. Stay with us on Detroit Today. As we continue to look at the state of policing politics and unrest in america we now turn our attention to the roots of fascism so that we might better understand it in the context of life in 2020 in america our next guest wrote a book about two years ago called how fascism works the politics of us and them and now amid an election year a pandemic and calls for an end to systemic racialized oppression That book has never felt more relevant. Jason Stanley is the Jacob Urowski uh, Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, and he joins us now to talk about his book and about this moment in American politics. Jason, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Thanks so much, Stephen. It's great to be speaking to a Michigan audience. Yes.
1: So in your book, you look at fascist policies of the 20th century leaders in Europe. For listeners who might not know European history, briefly tell us who those leaders were.
4: Well, I I look both at Mussolini uh, in Italy and Hitler in Germany, but also there were many fascist movements uh, in Spain, in Britain, Oswald Mosley, and in the United States, in the interwar period, there was a huge fascist movement, and it overlaps very significantly with the Ku Klux Klan. Hmm. So when you want to think about fascism in the United States, think about the Ku Klux Klan and white nationalism.
1: Hmm. So, so let's define that term a little better, fascism. When we say so that, fascis- what do we mean? Fascism is
4: revolutionary nationalism motivated by fear of the other, power and loyalty. The fascist demagogue says we were once great, we ruled things, but they, where they is usually invariably uh, a minority, uh, communists, immigrants, always immigrants, uh, they have ruined us, they have ruined our greatness. I will change the country back to this fictional past where we were great, we will have a, this revolution where we will return to our previous greatness, and I will be the one who roots out these communists in our midst and roots and, and suppresses the minorities and replaces us again at the top. Mm. And in America, the us are white Christians, and the them are black Americans and foreigners, and Uh, it's also useful to think when thinking about the targets of communism of Pastor Martin Niemöller's poem. First, they came for the communists, Mm. uh, and I said nothing because I was not a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, the labor unions, uh, and I said nothing because I was not a member of a labor union. Then they came for the Jews, and I said nothing because I was not Jewish. So there you have the targets of of fascism, Uh, leftists, socialists, and communists, labor unions, and minorities.
1: Mm. So so uh, the things that you were saying about the ways in which fascists or, or potential fascist leaders try to appeal to their audiences are of course I mean you can't you can't hear that right now without hearing the campaign of Donald Trump in 2016 and presumably what we will see happen again as he campaigns for re-election here in 2020. Um, so let's just kind of cut to the chase. Is Donald Trump appealing to fascist instincts or desires with the message that he is using to craft his campaign for the presidency?
4: He's unquestionably doing that. He's appealing to fascist ideologies. Uh, he's using fascist tactics. For instance. Uh, and, and this is not to say that we live in a fascist state. We do not live in a fascist state. But you can have politicians that use fascist tactics in order to win elections. That's what Hitler did. Uh, you know, that's what, uh, that's what Bolsonaro did in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. For, for example, a classic fascist tactic. Uh, it's mine, chapter one of Mein Kampf is about the wonderful little town that, that in, the, in the rural areas that uh, Hitler grew up in. And chapter two is my study in struggles in Vienna. And Vienna is the big city filled with foreigners and Jews, Jews, and more Jews, filled with decadence and crime. Chapter 9 of my book is called Sodom and Gomorrah. The cities are burning and in flames and filled with the hated minorities. And we need the real genuine people from the heartland to counter that and take over this rot from the cities. And Michigan knows all about that kind of politics.
1: Mm. Uh, I'm talking with Jason Stanley. He is the author of five books, including How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Uh, he is the Jacob Urowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. Uh, we're talking about fascism and the way that word is creeping back into the political dialogues that we're having, uh, not just At the national level in terms of the presidential election, but also in terms of the way that the nation and perhaps the federal government is responding to the massive protests that we see in the streets in places like Detroit and Portland and other American cities. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what you know about fascism and whether you're concerned that we are living in a country that is lurching toward Fascist ideals. Uh, Do you believe that the Trump administration, for instance, and the Trump presidency is using fascist ideas as a way to appeal to people's fears? Uh, As always, the number on the phones here is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's start with Terry in Mount Clemens. Terry, welcome to the show. Oh.
3: Yeah, good morning, Steve. Hi. Um, I was listening to Morning Edition earlier, and there was a fellow named jo- Jonah Goldberg from the dispatch. He was the editor-in-chief. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he made the comment that uh, that the situation in Portland is purely political and that it's not necessarily appealing to, you know, a particular fascist group but that it's going to be a video at the RNC convention
2: it it'll be a virtual video at the RNC convention to support the uh cu- the carnage uh statement that uh, Trump has made in the past.
1: So, anyway, I thought that it was interesting. Yeah, so essentially your 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 point or Jonah's point was that this is a a political manipulation. That meant to yeah. to create images that that will uh, help the president make the case that that something is happening that perhaps is not.
4: Yes, this is what we're seeing right now. We're seeing the president use this new federal force, ICE and CBP. Remember, Homeland Security was created in the wake of the War on Terror. Yes, uh, it's not some sort of architecton- uh, archetypical U.S. institution. It's this institution. It's a police force designed to separate citizens from non-citizens. The president is now using it against his political opponents, explicitly directing it into democratic-led cities that have uh, and uh, and directing against and using them to stir up protests for campaign purposes. So this should deeply concern us as a use of an institution for the president's particular politics that should not happen in a democratic society. Indeed, we should question whether ICE and CBP should exist in a democratic society. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Again, thanks very much, Terry, for the call and the insight. Let's go to Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, Stephen. Hi.
3: Um, And uh, hi, Professor. Uh, So my question is, um, I'd like to know from the professor how fascism looks like from left-leaning governments and how it would look from right-leaning governments. Some
1: examples of how that would look. It's an interesting question, Melissa. Is there a difference uh, on the ideological spectrum, for instance, uh, where you see fascist leaders uh, uh, doing things that are anti-democratic?
4: Okay, so there's no such thing as left-wing or liberal fascism. You have to look at... Because fascism doesn't just mean bad thing. There are plenty of bad left-wing things, but you shouldn't call them fascism. You should call them communism. Hmm. Uh, so fascism is a far-right thing. Mm-hmm. A fa- think of Pastor Niemöller's comment. Communists and socialists, labor unions, Jews. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that Leftists do not target labor unions, <laughs> right. communists and socialists, and minorities. So Uh, So you have left wing bad things and leftist anti-democratic movements such as communism have killed just as many people, if not more, than fascist movements. But what we face, the threat we face in the United States, the anti-democratic authoritarian threat, the major one, comes squarely from the far right. It comes from our white nationalist past. The use of whiteness to make black people and leftists seem like terrifying threats to law and order. This is our fascist past. It's always from the right wing. Hmm. The Democrats under Clinton did adopt this strategy as well. They race baited and, you know, both parties have done it. But that just means that both parties have engaged in these racial fascist tactics, Hmm. Uh, not that these tactics are left wing.
1: So so I, I think for some people, though, that word fascism or fascist just equates with, anti-democratic and i think that that is sort of at the base of melissa's question right. uh and and what you're saying is that this is a word that describes a particular type of anti-democratic uh idea or rule and that uh, that it doesn't apply equally to, to to both sides of the political spectrum
4: absolutely there's other anti-democratic dangerous movements like communist authoritarianism but they're not fascist at all. Fascism is about targeting minorities. It's anti-global, anti-science. The fascist leader is a swaggering, macho guy who speaks from the gut. He doesn't trust science. Communist authoritarianism is like rationalism gone gone mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, state planners uh, who plan everything. Uh, fascism is not like that. Fact- fascism is, is, is anti-planning. It shoots from the gut. It's... Um, you know, uh, it's an attempt at So, and that's, and, and what we're seeing now is particularly vind is particularly close to the Marxist theory of fascism, which is ultra nationalism in the service of private equity. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the idea is the rich, the ultra wealthy, the, the finance capital and private equity support an ultra nationalist leader. So he can like, like throw nationalism in the face of poor whites, say, uh, so they can while their pockets are being robbed mm. and that's very close i think to the structure we see now where really it's a lot of corporate elites and private equity and mish- midwestern billionaires who are making money off of racism and ultranationalism.
1: nationalism mm. mm. uh, again melissa thanks very much for the call let's go to brian in detroit brian welcome to the show
5: Hi there. Hey. Yeah, uh, I'm almost in uh, line with the last statement from the professor there. Um my idea of fascism is a sort of, uh, a marriage between, uh, the market economy and, uh, well, the military. Yep. Uh, the fed hand in hand, Um uh, even, uh, as we we're going into our 19th year in a war that, uh, it's working beyond its definitions. Um, hmm. Yeah, market economy, like, you can look back, like, even the slavery. Uh, it was a market economy that drove uh, the uh, elites right. to, uh, n- well, not uh, involuntarily, but, like, uh, hey, we can make more money if we had yeah. some free labor. <laughs>
1: free labor, sure. Uh, and Brian, that, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and that, that go on, Brian.
5: And we're going on into an expansion of this thing. I think Trump is being backed by certain people to do certain things. Mm. I, I don't I, know if absolutely.
1: Yeah, Brian, I, I, I appreciate know. the call and the thoughts. Uh, yeah. Jason Staley, go ahead and respond.
4: Absolutely. Brian's right. Absolutely. And I think there you, that's why I, I don't say Trump himself is a, Trump is a fascist ideologue. He's giving us fascist politics and rhetoric and he's using these fascist tactics, but He is not a fascist. He's not like Putin telling the oligarchs that control things. I'm going to put you, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to put you in prison if you don't do what I say. Uh, He is being he is opening the gates to all of the richest people in the cut to the richest, uh, most powerful concerns The, the uh, we're seeing this with COVID-19, where he's sort of opening up to the pharmaceutical companies to replicate what the CDC is doing. Uh, he's privatizing everything. He's doing everything for the super wealthy. And they seem to be more in control of him. And as long as they're in synergy, they're going to support him. Mm-hmm. So it's much more that structure where he's a mouthpiece for uh, the, the privatization and looting of America. I think that's much more using racism as a way to uh, to c- confuse people, to hide the fact that labor unions are being destroyed. Um, and uh, and and then just open the pockets of government uh, to and and to private industry. So I think that's a it's the structure where it's the mar- that marriage between the corporate elite and the political wing uh, where uh, racism, uh, fear, uh, immigration, xenophobia and machismo are being used to draw people in uh, into a politics Uh, that is actually destroying them. Mm.
1: Uh, I also wonder if you believe this is a dynamic of Trump himself and isolated to his view of how things should be, or if this is something that infects the Republican Party in a way that predated Trump and supersedes him in some ways. In other words, is this... The direction that this party is and has been headed for a really long time.
4: Yes, it is, and Trump is a symptom, not a cause. And we're going to we have Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, Tucker Carlson, all of whom are going to be more effective Trumps than Trump coming up in subsequent elections. And the Republican Party, the key, Arendt Rent talks about the danger of a political party valuing party party over parties, and what she means is. You can't have a political party in a democracy that places loyalty to the party over loyalty to a multi-party system. And that's what we have right now with the Republican Party, and it's Newt Gingrich, I think, who is most responsible for this politics. Saying, "We're we're not we're going to pretend that the Democrats are illegitimate." You know how the Republicans are always saying that anyone they face is a communist mm-hmm. or a socialist, you know, is is a dangerous leftist. So, that's this politics that if you're not part of our party, you're a traitor. And that's anti-democratic. That's shared by communist authoritarianism and by fascist authoritarianism, the one-party state. Mm. And the Republicans are trying to transform our country into one where the minority party, because that's, face it, what they are, holds all the levers of power. And they try to represent the opposition, not as people with a different view, but as thoroughly illegitimate dangerous communists that must be defeated, hmm. and that is fascist
5: politics.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jason, we only have about a minute left, but I want to get you to talk a little about the antidote to this kind of fascist idealism. What are the things that we should be doing to move back toward uh, you know, the liberal democracy that, that I think we all say we cherish?
4: Well, we need to directly confront the racism in our society that enables these fascist leaders to represent minority groups as fundamental threats to America. We need to to say, you know, we need to not give up. uh, We we need to recognize that there's longstanding uh, racial injustice that our police departments uh, have been complicit. Our politicians, certainly Michigan, can speak to that uh, with its history of emergency management. Um, Public schools do not... Uh, serve white and black citizens equally and as long as we have these huge racial differences we will have protests that will be represented as riots which then will be used by these demagogues to uh, to grab power and rob us blind so therefore we must address this uh, history uh, and present of racial injustice and that's what black lives matter is it is an anti-fascist movement Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. okay Jason Stanley author of How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, and the Jacob Yurowski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much, Stephen. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. We are going to talk with Congresswoman Haley Stevens about the pandemic, about relief for Americans, which is still being debated in Congress, and a number of other subjects. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.